This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Fish and oranges. A salty sea of soup dotted with islands of potato chunks that Pearl can mash flat with the back of a spoon. Bread so dry when she dunks it into her lukewarm soup, the stubborn roll remains firm. But Pearl can be stubborn too. She continues dunking the roll until it softens and melts into a paste. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to Aaron Hamburger, whose latest novel, Hotel Cuba, tells a story that's easily identifiable by many of us whose grandparents escaped Eastern Europe after World War I and during the Russian Revolution. Two daughters of a cantor turned kosher butcher gather enough money to join their older sister in New York, but American policies have just changed and they can only get to Cuba. These are the heady days of prohibition, when Cuba is a playground for Americans with enough money to cross from Key West for the opportunity of a few days of swirling hot weather, colors, sights, and booze. Of all that Cuba offers, Pearl and her sister Frida feel the heat, are amazed at the colors and tastes, but long for escape to America. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I read in your acknowledgments that you based the characters loosely on your grandparents to whom you dedicate this novel. What got you thinking about your grandmother and her story? So about six years ago, I came across this photo of my grandmother in full male drag. And you have to know my grandmother as I knew her as a little boy growing up when she was in her 80s and then her 90s. She was that Yiddish bubby who always, you know, um, was making cookies and giving me little candies and singing me lullabies and her very strong Eastern European accent, uh, always dressed very traditionally, very sort of like exactly what you would think a bubby to be. So to see this picture of her 
in a man's shirt, a man's tie, and a man's pants smoking a cigarette was just so startling to me. I was immediately intrigued. And then uh, the other thing that that happened was we had a very big election in 2016, and there was a lot of talk about immigration in the air and banning certain immigrants. And I was very concerned about immigrants' rights. And so I joined a group of writers. I live in Washington, D.C., and we went over to Capitol Hill, and we were knocking on the doors of various senators trying to advocate for progressive causes. And um, I volunteered to take uh, Senator Debbie Stabenow of of Michigan, uh, because that's where I grew up. And so I I brought this picture of my grandmother to the senator. And I said to her, uh, you know, my grandmother was an immigrant. She worked hard to this country. And in her honor, I would like you to support the immigrants of today. And she said, oh, I agree with you. And I thought, boy, that was the easiest lobbying job I ever heard of. And uh, then uh, I said to her, well, what can I do to support you? And I thought she would say, donate to my campaign or march in the streets. And she said, you're a writer. Tell your grandmother's story. Wow. And so that, that's where it, it, it all began. Thank you, Debbie Stabenow. I, I always liked her. She's great. Um, <laughs> was your Bobby, upon whom Pearl is based, also a precise and imaginative seamstress? You know, by the time that I knew her, uh, she was not really able to sew anymore because she was well into her 80s and 90s. Um, But from the stories that were told about her and the stories uh, that I uh, that she told, I got the sense that she was incredibly skilled. Um, We have um, uh, several hours of recordings that my brothers did with both my grandparents about their immigration stories. And my grandmother talks about how when she got to New York, she got a job for a fancy dressmaker who made uh, uh, dresses for rich ladies. And my grandmother, uh, you know, started working for her. And this lady just loved my grandmother. And my grandmother said, you like my work? You got to pay me for it. And she she demanded higher wages and the her bosses kept giving her more and more uh, because she appreciated her work so much. Um, and then uh, eventually when my grandmother um, left and she moved to Detroit to marry my uh, grandfather, uh, her boss actually came to Detroit to visit her. Um, and this is a scene in the book that I actually recreate as a telephone call for dramatic purposes. But but she actually did come to make sure that she was OK, because that's how in what high esteem she regarded my grandmother. Oh, there's also a character based on your grandfather, but I won't give it away by saying his name still. What does your character have in common with your real Zadie? So my grandfather, I, I, I wish everybody could have met him because he was one of the kindest spirits you will ever meet. Uh, you know, I, I just remember so vividly growing up and I would go to visit him, you know, particularly as he was older, living in the, um, you know, the sort of retirement uh, home. And I would say to him something like, you know, yeah, I had to tie my shoe. You tied your shoe? How did you do it? Oh, you're so smart. You're so wonderful. You know, And the thing was, I was his grandson. So, you know, he loved me and he wanted to make me feel good. But he had that effect on everybody. He would go to the bank 
And it would take him like forever to go to the bank. And my mom would say, what were you doing all that time? He said, well, somebody, you know, I said to somebody, how are you? And they told me and I had to listen and give them advice, you know, and, and, you know, after he died, so many people came up to us and said, your grandfather made me feel so good about myself. Uh, I was always listening. Um, he was, he was a very deep and wise uh, listener and just, just a sweet, uh, dear soul. So how, did you research what was happening in the small Polish town of Turia in the year 1922? Was the story based on the actual town where your grandparents were born? Uh, yes, it was. I changed the name because I didn't want people to say, well, you said it was like this. And it was actually like that because it is a novel. Uh, but the name of the town, it's a shtetl. It's called um, David Horaduk. It's in today's Belarus. Um, you know, and it was within what's called the Pale of Settlement, which was the sort of area of the Russian Empire where Jews were allowed to live. Um, and the borders kept changing, particularly in the, the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. There were lots of there's World War One. There was a Russian Revolution after the Russian Revolution uh, that Poland went to war with Russia, the Soviet Union, and took over that swath of territory. Um, and uh, I'm I'm very fortunate that there's a very active uh, Lanzmann Society, and also uh, there was a Yisker book. A lot of these shtetls had what's called a Yisker book, where people recorded memories of these shtetls, which were largely all um, destroyed um, during World War II and the Holocaust. So I was able to draw on a lot of those resources, and then um, of course there, there, we're just so lucky. There are so many uh, great uh, books of scholarship. Uh, about life in the shtetl. And so I was able to draw on those as well. And then mm -hmm. um, we had the, these recordings of my grandparents talking about their memories. Um, so that was an invaluable resource. And then um, I also interviewed a cousin of mine who um, had done some research on his own. And also um, his, his uh, mother is my grandmother's sister. Uh, and so uh, he gave me a lot of information as well. Well, is is she the character based on Frida? I mean, that yes. Frida's based on, based on. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. That's the one. Oh, good to know. Frida had children. Okay. Yes, yes, she um, had three children. When we first meet Pearl, she's sharing food with Frida, her younger sister, and she's longing to be confident, to dress well, to be treated with dignity, but she's filled with jealousy, especially because her sister's never hungry and she's always hungry. Can you say more? Yeah, well, you know, I, I remember once hearing uh, the writer Margaret Atwood, who's one of my favorite writers, talking about um, when she's whenever she's writing fiction, she's very concerned with um, what do her characters have to eat and drink and where and how do they sleep? And it's such a great sort of simple but profound way to connect with a character because people, as they live their everyday lives, I mean, you know, someone like Pearl, she lived through World War One, the Russian Revolution, you know, immigrating to America, all these big historical events. But in her life, she had to survive. She had to make it from place to place and be able to feed herself. And I also thought how interesting would it be for a character like Pearl to have a strong appetite at the same time love dainty clothes and want to wear dainty clothes, but be somebody who is more sort of, um, you know, uh, doesn't have a dainty figure uh, to match. Uh, so that created a kind of intrinsic conflict uh, for Pearl. And, and then some of it was also inspired by my grandfather talking about um, taking the ship 
across the Atlantic to America. And, um, you know, it was it was a terrible crossing. The North Atlantic is, you know, notoriously stormy and, and difficult. Um, and all the passengers were getting seasick. But my grandfather had like an iron stomach. And so he he talked about the fish and the oranges and he would eat everybody else's fish, fish and oranges because they were too seasick to eat. And he was still hungry. And so he was just, you know, grabbing all their food and fortifying himself. Mm. Why is Pearl proud of so proud of their father? Um can you say more about him? Yeah, so you know, you know, again to make it sort of a juicier uh story, I made the father uh a more difficult man than my grandfather's actual uh father. Uh one of the things that my grandmother talked about with her father uh and and this was true of um the character in the book was that he was a man of, of real culture and learning. You know, uh, he came from Lithuania. He came from a sophisticated big city. He had access to a lot of learning. He knew Shakespeare. He knew Spinoza. Um, so he was a very deeply learned man. Um, and then I, I tried to imagine how would that feel to be kind of like, you know, imagine like a big New York City type and then suddenly sort of moving to a, a shtetl in the middle of nowhere and having to work as a butcher to support your family where all that intellect, you know, do, doesn't really get put to use. Um, so I think she's very proud of, of the of the learning that, uh, that her father has. Uh, and um, and he's also a, a man of, of strength strong opinions and is trying to to do right by his family. And then of course, you know, when her when Pearl's mother dies, her father becomes all the more important in terms of keeping the family together. But she's proud of him for being from Lithuania. Oh, yes. Yes. Why why? That was something again that my cousin told me. He said that, you know, that that this branch of the family, they came from Lithuania and they were they put on airs about that, that there was something uh, better about being from Lithuania. You know, it's kind of, it's interesting. Like I'm from Michigan and people from Michigan, we have this tendency to think, oh, we're a little bit better than those people from Ohio. You know, it's always oh. when somewhere <laughs> is, it's, is next to another place, you know, or people from Australia and New Zealand, they have this little rivalry going on. Um, but I think some of it, again, has to do with the fact that um, you know, Vilna or Vilnius in Lithuania was a big city and, um, you know, the, the shtetl where they lived was kind of a small town. So, you know, maybe there was something in that kind of um, sophisticated big city um, airs. Mm -hmm. uh, and that being... he was educated. And he was educated. Not that the shtetl was sort of like, you know, it's interesting. We have this idea of the shtetl as being kind of like Fiddler on the Roof, these simple people who dance around with kerchiefs on their heads. You know, in fact, uh, in the shtetl where my grandmother was from, it was it was a hotbed of socialism. Uh, they were putting on Shakespeare plays. Uh, they would do concerts with arias from Italian opera. You know, they weren't totally in the dark, but it was it was probably more scattershot, more haphazard uh, than the kind of cultural life that somebody might have had in a big city like the capital of Lithuania. Um, everybody's giving Pearl and Frida advice for uh, for battling for dealing with the trip over to America and my favorite one was trust one eye more than two ears but the, <laughs> the one about the grains of salt is good too was any were any of those actual things your grandmother used to say no but uh you know Yiddish has just a wealth of these kinds of proverbs and sayings and one of the fun parts of this book was 
uh, just reading some of these and and definitely my my actually now that you say it it does remind me of of some of the things that my grandparents used to say uh, like my grandfather used to say the more people you know the more stupid people you know um, or you know people who play with dogs lose their brains you know just these <laughs> these sort of odd sayings that uh, were, were truisms in their own minds and then if you kind of scratch the surface a little bit you might be able to find some sort of uh, real world cause for these kinds of um, sayings. For example, my grandparents were always terrified of dogs because uh, non-Jews used to sick dogs on, on Jews where they came from. So, you know, um, dogs were not a good thing in their in their world. So no wonder my grandfather would say something like, people who play with dogs lose their brains. I say this as a, a dog owner <laughs> with a dog. <laughs> Is at my feet right now as I'm speaking. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Um, another one of my favorite quotes is when uh, Pearl's father, the, Pearl and her father are worried about Frida longing to marry Mendel. They don't think highly of him. And the, the father says, Mendel is the type who looks in the mirror every five seconds to visit with his best friend. What yeah. a great quote. <laughs> is that one yeah. that you remember? It's a family gem. If it yeah. was. No, no, it's just, it's, as again, you know, one of these sort of Yiddish expressions that I just kept, you know, I kept, um, as I was reading about, you know, uh, shtetl life, you know, they, they just keep coming up all the time. And, um, and actually it's interesting because a lot of times like in Yiddish, in um, Yiddish stories, uh, you see characters who are named like um, Sarah the tall or, you know, David the, the dumb or something. Um, and my grandmother in, in her recording said, yeah, in the shtetl, that's how we call people. And the reason everybody had a nickname was that everybody had the same names. Like they, they drew a, you know, it's not like today where people have like all kinds of different, you know, variety of names. It was pretty much like David, you know, Rivka, you know, um, Ben, whatever, you know, these biblical names. So to differentiate between everybody, you had to give them a nickname that went with their first name. So it was a very, uh, it felt like a very kind of descriptive, rich, really a kind of literary uh, kind of place to live. Wow. Not at all like the shtetl my grandparents grew up on. But... Oh, funny. <laughs> so Millie is a kind woman who offers Pearl and Frida money so they can easily get past customs once they dock in Cuba. She's from the Ezra Society. Can you say more about that? Sure. So uh, many people might know about a group called HIAS, H-I-A-S, the Hebrew Immigration Aid Society, which was uh, based in New York. It was founded by 
um, Jews who had been in America for a while. And as they saw the surge of Jewish immigration, they wanted to form a society to help the new immigrants meet them at the docks when they arrived in New York and help them to uh, assimilate. And by the way, they still exist to this day and they help immigrants of, of all backgrounds and they're a wonderful organization. So um, in Cuba, there was a Jewish community that were mostly consisted of American Jews who came over to work in the sugar industry. And as Jews started coming to Cuba, and, and they were doing so because America was basically closing its doors. They were imposing very severe quotas on immigration from Eastern Europe and Russia starting in 1921. All these Jews are, are, are going to Cuba instead of America because the steamship companies, they're losing money on all the passage that the immigrants were paying to come to America. And so they're saying, hey, come to Cuba instead. It's right next door. So uh, the American Jews who were in Cuba were concerned, like, what are these people going to do? And particularly the young women, they might fall into prostitution, for example. And so they formed what they called the Ezra Society, which was like an offshoot of Hyas in New York. And they would meet these immigrants, particularly the young women who came uh, off the boats. And then they would take them to what was called the Madelheim. It was a young women's home uh, where they could rest, they could get clothes, they could get a little pocket money, learn some Spanish, and get assistance with assimilating uh, to Cuba. So now we're in Cuba, the two women are there. And I'm wondering, did you do a research trip to Cuba? Yes. In fact, the very first thing that, that I did was uh, travel to Cuba. And it was an amazing, you know, obviously there's, there's not a ton of, you know, records from the 1920s. People were writing this kind of thing down. Um, but, you know, luckily uh, I was able to draw on some work of some scholars just to point me in the right direction. Uh, really, though, the focus of my trip was to get a sense of the light, the quality of the air, the kinds of flowers and buildings and the atmosphere that my grandmother would have encountered. And that really inspired so much of the book to me because I was trying to imagine how does somebody go from being in this landlocked, wintry slash muddy uh, shtetl, you know, this very sort of cloistered existence to, of all places, Havana, Cuba, during, by the way, prohibition, when Americans are flooding the island to get drunk and get wild. I mean, it's like Mardi Gras on steroids. So what is that like? What is the culture shock that my grandmother was experiencing? Um, and so that trip really helped me to get a sense of the flavor of the, of the air, so to speak. Um, and uh, also, I just... You know, everywhere I went, I was looking at all the buildings. Is this older than 1922? Would my grandmother have seen this? Uh, you know, and uh, th that was also kind of just an amazing experience just to walk in the places where she would have walked. Wow. Yeah, I bet. Um, no matter where they are, Pearl is very careful about not eating uh, non-kosher meat. She's still careful and still committed. Unlike Frida, can you say more? Yeah. So Pearl is somebody who feels more of a link to her past, to her traditions than young Frida, who's, you know, not only nine years younger than uh, Pearl, but grew up without a mother. 
uh, Pearl really was, you know, Pearl, although she's Frida's older sister, really was like a mother figure to her. But she was also incredibly busy trying to fill the role of, of her mother um, and be a girl. So Frida doesn't have that same kind of feeling for tradition that Pearl has. Um, and also she's growing up at a different time and she has a different nature than Pearl has. You know, it's funny. Uh, one of the big influences for me writing this book was Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen, where you have these two sisters, one who is very sort of sensible, logical, rational, more emotionally withheld, and another one who's more romantic and more, you know, open to the world of, of, of you know, emotion and poetry and, and whim uh, and and more colorful. And, and that's how I envisioned the two sisters. So um, I, I liked the idea of drawing out these distinctions between the two of them. Um, what shocks Pearl and Frida about the rabbi who's supposedly helping them in Key West? What's going on there? Uh, so in that case, actually, it's, it's only Pearl who meets the rabbi. Uh, who's, ah, right. Only Pearl. Yes. So he's an interesting figure. He's modeled on, there was a real uh, rabbi on whom he was modeled. And uh, I'm, I'm tremendously indebted to uh, a writer named Arlo Haskell, who wrote a book called The Jews of Key West. And he, he researched the whole history of Jews in Key West from the very first time there were any there up to the modern day. And he did a chapter that was focused on the time period when my grandmother was there. And the rabbi who was the chief rabbi at the time was suspected of being involved in smuggling. Now, smuggling at this time, you know, you could be smuggling alcohol, but if you were smuggling alcohol, you know, because of prohibition, you were pretty much always also smuggling immigrants because same boat. Mm -hmm. So there was some sense that perhaps he was involved in a bit of nefarious um, activity and, um, and perhaps he was a slightly dodgy character. Got it. Got it. Why doesn't Pearl trust anyone? Not the Steinbergs who give her and Frida a place to sleep. Not Alexander who tries to take her out on the town in Havana. Not her boss in New York. Why? Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and this is not giving too much away because readers will learn this in the first chapter. Uh, Pearl has been raped uh, during the tumultuous times, uh, you know, right, right around the time of the Russian Revolution. And, you know, as a victim of that kind of trauma, she has tremendous trust issues. Uh, she feels like she can't trust the universe. In a way, she feels like she can't trust God because God let this happen to her, you know, at least in her in her view. So she's always a bit wary. And part of the journey of this book that she makes is not just a journey to get to America, a place where she'll feel safe, you know, sort of outside herself, but getting to an inner place where she feels secure and safe. Uh, well, she's a lovely, lovely character and it's a beautiful book. Can I ask, what are you working on next? Uh, I'm working on a, a new novel, but I don't like to talk too much about my work in progress. I feel like I, it's like this baby that I'm guarding uh, from the world. So, uh, but I'm working on another novel. Good to know. I look forward to it. Thanks again, Erin Hamburg, for, for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks for joining me. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.
Today, I've been chatting with Aaron Hamburger, author of Hotel Cuba, a 20th century story of immigration. Hope you all have a good book to cuddle up with today, as always. Happy reading. <laughs> 